and have an open mind and be curious uh, and and don't don't allow yourself to be defensive about anything. Like you, you being wrong is maybe one of the most powerful things that can happen to you, especially at that at that stage. Uh, so start with something that you know and you have empathy for, and you think you can have some success behind, and that success will propel you potentially into that thing being great and huge, and you can do it forever. But it might give you the ability to see something you couldn't see before because of the momentum behind you and the access that you get, and maybe that's where the real idea is. You got to run really hard and fast, um, or else you'll, you know. You'll waste a lot of time and uh, rack up a lot of debt along the way, too. Welcome to 14 Minutes of SaaS, the show where you can listen to the stories and opinions of founders of the world's most remarkable SaaS scale-ups. This is the third and final episode of Three with Bob Moore. CEO and co-founder of Crossbeam. It's episode 114 of 14 Minutes of SaaS. Bob has a healthy obsession with SaaS ecosystems. He feels RJ Metrics was an opportunity missed because they didn't focus heavily enough on ecosystems. Salesforce is the largest pure play SaaS company in history and its single biggest achievement is its ecosystem. Looker's 2.6 billion exit value to Google was in part a function of the fact that it positioned itself in the center of a large ecosystem. And Looker was a competitor of RJ Metrics. That's the key to why, for Crossbeam, growing the network, growing those interconnected ecosystems is the single biggest metric for that business. And as always, there's some advice for SaaS entrepreneurs. Who are your typical customers? Obviously, it's a fairly horizontal play, but but at this stage in revolution, what uh, verticals and regions would you be strongest in at the moment? Yeah, so the honest answer is right now our, our best stuff is North American B2B SaaS companies with at least one employer that's or one employee that's got the word partnerships in their title. Okay. Like that is that's my that's, <laughs> that's my who go you sell to, to like, and through. They're one hundred percent of businesses that meet that that meet that profile. We want to get them on this network. And you're right, it's a big horizontal play. We've got um, inroads in in retail and financial services and large consumer brands. Um, a little bit of healthcare stuff even, we're looking at HIPAA compliance. So there are a lot of places sure. to put it, but because the business requires that both partners be on the platform, you get all these extreme uh, network effects, which are good and bad, right? In the early days, it's a major chicken and egg issue because the first person should never sign up because they don't have anybody to partner with. So every deal is like closing two deals at once. So we have to stick to these really narrow verticals and own the network graph where the, where the mesh it's is normal. the most dense, and that happens to be B2B SaaS. Um, and then what we do is we build out these concentric circles from there as, uh, as we get more, more adoption. So, so you're definitely on the, the right uh, podcast. So uh, where do you see Crossbeam going in the next uh, two to three years? Um, care a lot about the creation of value out of these ecosystems that is measurable and attributable and that turns the partnership function into something that's truly scalable um, and is, is a hero within the organization. Okay. There's a lot right now where due to the lack of data, people that are in partner manager roles are kind of reduced to a lot of checking calls, a lot of emails, different styles of attribution depending on which partner they're dealing with. Um, it's chaotic and what we want to do is just provide a means by which we can 
create comfort and standardization in how data gets exchanged and collaborated on between companies that are working with each other, yeah. and then actually help build out the workflows that people use to, to turn that data into value for their companies. So from a product standpoint, that's, that's a big point of focus. Sure. Um, and then from a market growth standpoint, uh, there are some very interesting kind of um, winner-take-all effects in this market because of those network effects, and I think it's, it's just important to us that we are it's a core value of the company that the network comes first. Uh, and what that means is in, in any decision, if we have an opportunity to grow the network, to get more partners on board, we're going to prioritize that over, over just about anything else that might be sure. kind of a, a secondary path to success or metric, traditional SaaS metric. It's a very attractive market and you're very shiny right now. So there's going to be, uh, there's going to be a lot of heat in that domain. So there's a land grab aspect to that. Oh yeah, there's yeah. a there's a moat to be dug uh, <laughs> and there will be folks uh, certainly trying to trying to cross that moat, no doubt. We're already seeing it. Um, and I know I get the impression just from what I've seen of you in, in research that you you love your city. You love Philly. I do, yeah. You love Philadelphia. Um, uh, so, you know, are you a largely co-located uh, company? Is that how, you, how you're built? Or because or, you mentioned Zapier, I'm just, yeah. and I actually don't know, I, I didn't get a chance to check that, but did you, you know, do you have uh, re, uh, remote employees or are you primarily co-located in a few offices? How do you, how are you structured? Yeah, so we're culturally extremely uh, remote friendly um, and I think take a very remote first philosophy around how we operate. So. Um, even if it's two people that are in the same physical office, like there's going to be a Zoom, you know, turned on. It's very possible they might be in different rooms or they might be sitting sure. at different desks. Um, you know, we, we try to make sure that those team members of ours who are not physically in the same office as others are not second-class citizens within the culture and the operations of the business. That said, um, about 75% of our company is in Philadelphia uh, okay. in an office we have there. So I think that's a thing where... You know, at an early stage, kind of less than 100 people company, it can be managed by hand-to-hand -hand combat and we're all one happy family. I think it does get hard. What I've heard and learned from other founders is you're either full remote or you're not. Uh, and Hybrids are tough. Yeah, hybrids are tough. Um, so I, I think what makes it less tough over time and what makes some of that advice get stale quickly, tools we use to run the business are tools that have been built with remote collaboration made uh, kind of in, in mind. And it's, it's interesting that tools like Zapier and Envision are fully remote businesses because they can have such tremendous empathy for remote work styles that inherent in their products are these things that just make it easier to, you know, to collaborate even when you're not in the same place. Um, and, and the, and the great thing, really interesting. The great thing about it is companies like them and, and Hotchar and lots of pretty cool 100% uh, distributed companies are, they write, a, they tend to write a lot about what they do, and uh, um, yeah, and the ones that are most interesting are usually the ones that are kind of agnostic about the whole thing and just say, "Well, this has worked for us, and this is how we this is how we've we, we built it out." Bringing it back to Philadelphia, um, you've been involved in volunteer activities around uh, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, and very notably education. Mm -hmm. And and you know, um, me as a, I guess an Irish guy, but very much a citizen of the European Union, who's worked with a lot of U.S. companies, I would see the U.S. as a global leader in entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. But for a developed uh, country, I would see it as compromised somewhat for both education and for not for elite universities, of course, yeah. but but for education for all or for. Um, a reasonable level of economic empowerment for all, I would see the U.S. as having more problems than almost any developed country in the world right now developed. Yeah. Um, 
what would you, what, how would you feel about that statement? I wouldn't disagree. The experience that I've been fortunate to have uh, is one that is, is somewhat um, diversified based on what chapter of my life you look at. Because if you look at my childhood education, which is in a public school system in a you know, uh, middle-class school district in southern New Jersey. Because you, ma you made it. Um, yeah. yeah, like a, a, an extremely diverse student base, um, both uh, racially, economically, um, you know, just it, it was wildly different than my experience going to an elite Ivy League university uh, uh, that happened immediately after. And yeah, the, the, the number of times in my freshman year at Princeton that like my jaw physically hit the floor um, just by having experienced, you know, something so wildly culturally different. Whether that is the extremely tremendous academic prowess of the folks that I was competing with, or something just you know cultural like the 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 things that are taken for granted in terms of the uh, the level of privilege that exists, whether it's the quality of the food that you're eating or the tenor of the conversation that you're having, um, it was a it was an eye opener for sure. me. Um, and then I think you know from there, I've I've continued to to really uh, benefit from a tremendous amount of privilege that has kind of just been an extension of my, my education at Princeton. I, don't, I couldn't have gotten my job at Insight if not for my Princeton education. But, but you're giving back, and you're very, you're very self-aware listening to you, and you've given back. Um, you know, did, you feel, uh, did you feel that desire to give back? Oh, yeah, and I think that's like the, that, that stark contrast has absolutely never left me. Half of my, uh, you know, my formation has been spent in a system that I do think is drastically underfunded. I think the teachers are underpaid and underappreciated and work so much harder and contribute so much more than, than what they're recognized for. I also have empathy for the administration, which has to kind of grapple with a tremendously underfunded situation where mandates around uh, testing and kind of the flawed quantification of success are coming down from on high. Like, it is rough. Um, and just those challenges are just non-existent on the other side. Uh, you know, you, you hop over and it's because of the level of selectivity and exclusiveness of who the student base is the set of problems that emerge become ones that, that are just kind of um, operate at a, a higher um, uh, a higher echelon of uh, kind of the uh, that hierarchy of needs. You know, you can stay. Oh yeah, these things are really different. Then the question becomes like, what do you do about it? Do you think the U.S. can be more like the European Union in that sense, or do you think we're crazy? How do you view that kind of? difference like it's an equality issue uh, and the the access to quality education that's available to students even in public school systems that's available to students of a certain level of privilege versus those that are for example you know students in the the public school system of Philadelphia going to their neighborhood school it's it's appalling that gap um, and I think that is a uh, you know it's extremely extremely downstream from just uh, a lot of very complicated legacy reasons that stem sure. from you know, the way that uh, taxation's been structured, the way that municipalities and school districts have been structured, a lot of the inherent inequalities that just exist in kind of the, the systemic history of um, how populations are, are kind of divided up, even in a city like Philadelphia, where, where you know, there's a, a major, major income equality gap. Um, but I think that's just a, a sample of what goes on in the U.S. at large. So I think, like, when I think about what is the solution, like, sure, maybe everybody should be paying more in taxes and that would be like a nice overlay. Like, let's lift everybody up by 20% uh, in terms of education quality. But if you lifted everybody up by 20%, you would still have this incredible inequality that okay. exists and there would be a huge gap there. Where I spend my time and where I spend my money for education 
is not at Princeton. Uh, I love Princeton. I learned a lot there. They don't need me. Um, you know, it, it's it's the time and energy that goes back into you know local school districts, like specifically the one you, you see on my background there is the Glassboro Education Foundation. That's the public high school that I went to. Um, I'm on the board of trustees of a private foundation that kind of helps subsidize. Uh, the things that the schools need that are just not able to be provided by the, the government. What personal quality do you feel that you have that has helped you be serious, serially successful really since leaving college? Um, that's college. a good question. Yeah, I think it's, there's a, like an a, a intersection of extreme optimism and extreme curiosity that I think have, have been beneficial. Um, I think I can definitely be a, an optimist to a fault in terms of giving <laughs> every person and conversation and idea enough of the benefit of the doubt to kind of say yes and instead of no but in the exploration of like where where it could go and i think that 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 manifests as curiosity which is you know always always asking a few more questions and going down those roads and um i think early in my career that probably was damaging like i think part of the reason we were able to do in two years at stitch what took eight years at rj metrics was you know we went from saying yes to everything at RJ Metrics to developing enough scar tissue and, and muscle memory to have a really good sense of why something might not work. Um, sure. And uh, uh, my business partner from RJ and Stitch, uh, Jake Stein, he's a big Warren Buffett fan. Warren Buffett's number two guy is this guy, uh, Charlie Munger, I think his name is. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Charlie's nickname is like the abominable no man uh, because he's just like, <laughs> He is there to say no to all the crazy stuff. You know, Jake always uh, kind of thought of himself as his my abominable no man uh, because he's a hyper rational, super smart guy, and uh, I think I, I tend to like everything. Um, so there's there's a lot there um, that you know just just kind of got cultivated over time to tame me down and let me learn from that and kind of but not lose that extreme enthusiasm and curiosity around things, which kind of leads you down roads you, you wouldn't have been down before. Last question for you, Bob. For any listener that would like to jump into an entrepreneurial role, what might you ask them or advise them? Yeah, I, probably the most powerful thing you can do is know your customers uh, and just have extreme empathy for the actual problems you're solving and how widespread they are and, and how your customers might value them. Um, I think that's something that, again, at RJ, we kind of like, we had, a, we had a problem and a technology solution, um, and we spent a lot of time figuring out who it was for, um, and then we had to actually get to know a lot of those people and empathize with them and understand, like, there was a lot of catching up to do. So when you graduated from college, you know, I judge like college hackathons, you know, sometimes, and it seems like half of the apps there are better food delivery to the dorm rooms. It's like, but I'm actually happy about that because it is, it comes from a place of extreme empathy because the people building it are the customer of the thing. And when you have uh, you know, some extreme enterprise software solution being developed by a bunch of college students, um, the hit rate on that's a lot lower. It's not that it never happens, but it's like you know, the, the people that win in these big B2B enterprise tend to be um, you know, uh, wearing uh, Patagonia vests and walking around with, with some gray hairs. Uh, it's so, not the folks so coming out of Y Combinator. So would you be a proponent of solve something close to you that you've, underst you've understood or, and walk you know, walk in the shoes of the customer, and then if you really feel it, then then look to solve it. And that can lead to something maybe bigger further down. Yeah, I'd say start there and, and have an open mind and be curious. Uh, and and don't, 
don't allow yourself to be defensive about anything. Like you, you being wrong is maybe one of the most powerful things that can happen to you, especially at that, at that stage. Uh, so start with something that you know and you have empathy for and you think you can have some success behind and that success will propel you potentially into that thing being great and huge and you can do it forever, but it might give you the ability to see something you couldn't see before because of the momentum behind you and the access that you get and maybe that's where the real idea is. You gotta run really hard and fast um, or else you'll, you know, You'll waste a lot of time and uh, rack up a lot of debt along the way too. Uh, Bob Moore, thanks for staying with me for so long. Beautiful. In the next episode, we'll welcome Ted Krantz, CEO of mobile data and analytics company App Annie. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to 14 Minutes of SaaS. Thanks to Mike Quill for his creativity and problem-solving skills, to Ketsu for the music, and to Anders Getz for the transcript. This episode was brought to you by me, Stephen Cummins. If you enjoyed the podcast, please don't forget to share it with your network, subscribe to the series, and of course, give the show a rating.